So we are in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to verse 25. And the outline there says, not guilty. Now, right, if you watch daytime TV, uh, you may have come across Judge Rinder, right? Uh, it is a popular TV show where the barrister, uh, Robert Rinder, acts as a judge uh, in civil cases. Uh, the Radio Times once described it as Jeremy Cow set in a small claims court. So it's that type of program. If you've been too busy with work and you haven't seen it, uh, it's Jeremy Cow set in a small claims court. Now, Judge Rinder is popular, and that raises a question, doesn't it? Why is Judge Rinder so popular? I think the reason is that all of us are fascinated by the bizarre and messy lives and relationships of those who bring their cases before Judge Rinder. As we watch the program, we are amazed to hear an argument between two sisters over a loan which started when the lender said she wanted the money to be paid back so she could give a chihuahua, Chichi, a wedding to remember. Chichi, of course, had already had a 6,000-pound hen party complete with a stretch limo. Like Joe Biden, we ask ourselves, what's the matter with them? And as we continue watching the program, something interesting happens to us, right? We also become judges as we are watching Judge Rinder. So we, if you like, we enter the courtroom from our sofas and we start analyzing the evidence presented on the program and we start passing our verdicts on the litigants on the show. And that makes us feel good, doesn't it, when we're watching Judge Rinder, right? It makes us feel good about ourselves because, of course, we are not like them. They are on trial. We are not. They are making a circus of ourselves. We don't. But is that really true? Have you thought about that? Have you seen the program? Is that really true? Are we all not on trial? Well, the Bible says all of us are on trial. It says the world is a courtroom, if you like. The judge is God. Our crime is treason against God. That's what sin is. We've rebelled against God. The evidence is your life, past, present, and future. And the sentence will be formally passed on judgment day. That's what the Bible says. The whole world is a courtroom. And this morning, what I want to do is, because we don't think about it that way, what I want to do this morning is I want to briefly just remind you what the Bible says about this serious situation we are in. The fact that we have come before God as a criminal. That we are all in a courtroom before God. That's a serious situation we are in. And, and I want us to think about that. And I want us to be encouraged in terms of how we should respond to that serious situation. And to help us do this, I want us to just briefly look at Romans 3, verse 21 to verse 25. In this passage, this passage was written by the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. And in this passage, Paul is describing the serious situation we are in. And it also tells us the solution God has given us to escape our predicament. There are three truths Paul shares here. I just wanted to walk them through with you. The first truth, Paul says, is that everyone is a guilty sinner before God. Everyone is a guilty sinner before God. A famous actor is found dead in his home in New York. 
This happened recently. Tributes pouring from all over the world. They are shocked. And many of the tributes celebrate how wonderful this man is. But this past week, the New York Medical Examiner issued a report. It was a report last week which says the man died of an overdose of heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl. It makes us pause, doesn't it? We ask ourselves, who would throw away their life like that? Who would do that? A young woman has an 18th birthday party in 2018. So she treats herself to a non-stop drug and drinking spree in London, Coventry, and Solihull. The tabloids call it a bender, apparently, when you go on such a long stretch of drinking. So while she does that, she's going around London, Coventry, and Solihull, and all along, she has locked up her two-year-old daughter at home. Police later find the toddler as starved to death, and the sentence was passed not long ago on her. We think about that woman and we ask ourselves, what is wrong with that young lady? What is wrong with her? What do you think is wrong with her? A five-year-old boy is discovered in a southeast London park. He has been battered to death. And he has been battered to death with a trainer. You know, the trainers young people wear, right? We ask ourselves, who would do such a despicable thing? The police, of course, go about to do the investigation. They, they look at the case. And they later find that the child has been killed by the mother's boyfriend because he lost his trainers. And we ask ourselves, what is wrong with that man? What is wrong with him? Something is wrong with the world, isn't it? We see it on Judge Rinder. We see it in everyday news. And we ask ourselves quietly, what is wrong with them? What is wrong with them? But when we pause to think, we realize immediately that is the wrong question, isn't it? The right question we should be asking is this. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? None of us are what we should be. None of us. Everywhere we look, in our personal lives, we've messed up in so many ways. In our families, many of them are messed up. In fact, all of them are. Our governments, the NHS, businesses, churches. It is obvious something is wrong with us. What is wrong with us? Well, the Bible says the problem with us is called sin. Us, all of us, have inherited a spiritual disease from our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God. And we are all infected by their rebellion. And Paul here says this, doesn't he? In verse 22 there in the passage in front of you, he says, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what Paul is saying is what is wrong with us is that all of us are sinners. You are born in sin and you will die in sin. Your life is full of sin, word, thought, and deed. That is what's wrong with the world. Sin is not just something we do. 
Sin is our slave master. It controls us. That's why people can't shake off their sin, no matter how much money they have. Paul, earlier on in the passage we read, says this in verse 9 to verse 12 of Romans 3, says this, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That is to say, are under its power and control. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, no, not even one. So the bottom line, according to the Bible, is not very politically correct. It is that you and I are sinners. None of us in this room are good before God. Now, when I say that, many in our society have problems with that statement. And perhaps when you hear that, you are offended. Because when I speak to people, many of them would say to me, Look, Chola, I am not a sinner because I have my own truth. And you have your own truth. Now, of course, some of you have laughed. Because you can immediately realize there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because none of us lives like that. Would you be happy... If the boss at work on payday said to you, I have my own truth this month, you have your own truth. So there's no pay. Of course you won't accept that. I mean, you, you get angry about that. It, it's silly. None of us have our own truth. Truth, by definition, is a, is a, is a description of, of true reality. Of reality as it is. And so it, it must be objective by nature. If we all had our own truth, life would be active. Can you imagine? Government cannot govern. Because Boris tells you there's COVID, you say, no, I have my own truth. Parents cannot parent. If you're a parent here, you don't want your child to say they have their own truth. Teachers, of course, would not be able to teach, and so on. So it's quite obvious that it is not good enough for us to say we are not sinners because we have our own truth. Truth is absolute. It is a statement that matches reality. And the only one who knows all truth is the almighty God who created all truth. Because for there to be truth, there must be an objective standard to that truth. And only God who knows all things can set that standard. I can set it. You can set it. The one who created you must set that standard. And, the, and, and this God has revealed his truth in the Bible. The, the, the Bible is the word of God. And he says here, we are all sinners. For there is no distinction, he says in verse 22. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you are not a sinner because you, you are necessarily worse, worse off than another person. Right? You, all of us can think of situation in which we are better than other people. I mean, you are better morally to some degree than Hitler was or the Taliban in Afghanistan. So when God talks about the fact that we are sinners, he's not comparing you to other people. No, he's comparing you to his own standard, his righteous standard. You are not good compared to God. That's what the Bible is saying in verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is who God is. His beauty, His majesty, His goodness. And the Bible is saying you and I do not meet God's standard. 
You and I do not treat God as he deserves to be treated. And that is essentially what sin is. If you're wondering, what is sin? Because we hear a lot about what sin is in the church. But what is it? Well, sin is not only doing bad things. It is living for yourself rather than God. It's treating God less than he deserves. It's you putting yourself first ahead of God. And who here can say they don't live like that? All of us do. We live for myself and I. And so the Bible says all of us, therefore, are guilty sinners before God. We stand not only guilty, we stand condemned. And all of us are born into this world facing eternal punishment from God. Paul says this in chapter 1 of Romans 1, verse 18 to 19. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, not some, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men or people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You know God exists but you don't put him first. And that makes you a sinner. And the consequences of this is in Romans 2 verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, that's everyone, the Jew first and also the Greek. So that's our predicament. We are under sin and the everlasting punishment of God is upon us. And so that raises a question, doesn't it? What can we do to escape this wrath of God? And the Bible's answer is nothing. We are helpless. Remember, sin is our slave master. We can't escape it. You can never be good enough for God because God is perfect. You and I are born trapped in our sin and we are born below the standard of God. So there's nothing we can do about it. All of us, everyone, is a guilty sinner before God. But here is the most fantastic news that there is. And the fantastic news is this, is the second point there in your outline. God declares sinners innocent through Jesus Christ. This is the great news of the Bible. The great news of the Bible is that God knows our sin problem is way over our head. And so he has stepped in to help us. Look at verse 21 to verse 23, 24 there, which explains this. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now there are a lot of words here, very difficult terms to understand, right? But what the Bible is essentially saying here is that God knows you cannot keep all his commandments. God knows sin is too big for you. You can never be good enough for God. So instead of God leaving you to rot in hell forever for your disobedience against him, God, out of his love, has done something about your situation. He has taken the initiative to declare you a rebellious sinner, innocent or righteous before him. That's good, isn't it? And, and the word for this is, the, the word the Bible uses for this declaration is justified there in verse 24, 23 to 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, declared right by his grace. 
To justify is to declare sinners innocent before God. Uh, God declares those who have wronged him as if they have never sinned before God. Just a clean bill of health. It's like if you've amassed a lot of debt, God says, you don't know anything anymore against me. Now that's amazing, isn't it? And it raises the question like, how can God do this? Well, technically, God cannot do that. God cannot do this because many of our sins are not only against God, they are also against other human beings. So God can't do it, first of all, because God himself is just. His justice demands he punishes sinners. But there's another reason he can't do it, because if he forgave you your sins, as it were, related to that, well, you've wronged other people. So think about murderers for a minute. If God decides to forgive that man who murdered the toddler over a lost trainer, what about justice for the toddler? God would be unjust if he just forgave that person. And yet this verse, in this verse, God says he declares sinners innocent. How is that possible? Because someone has taken the punishment for our sins. Look at verse 23 to 25 again. He says, we, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, justified or declared right by his grace, God's grace, as a gift is given to us. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood or by his death to be received by faith. In other words, God can only remove the punishment hanging over us if someone perfect willingly takes our place and suffers the punishment from God in our place. And that individual, in order for that individual to do that for us, he must be human like us to stand in for us, but he also must be as powerful as God is to take on himself the full weight of God's punishment. And the good news of this verse is that God sent his eternal son, who is fully God and fully man, the Lord Jesus, to step in into our shoes and suffer the punishment we deserve. If we do not pay our tax, we end up in prison, don't we? But if someone pays our debt, the judge can let us go. Jesus came to pay our debt to God by his death. And this is what the word propitiation here means. It means when Jesus died on the cross, he suffered in his body and soul God's wrath in our place. So that God can declare us not guilty. So that God can let us go free. The other word we see here is the word redemption. Did you see that? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We don't use the word redemption often, but to redeem something means to set free, isn't it? Like you got vouchers, you take them somewhere, you redeem the value, right? You buy back something. And what the Bible is saying is that when God declares us not guilty because of Jesus, he also sets us free. Remember, we have the problem with the power of sin. So God sets us free from the power of sin. We are now given a new nature. We are born again and we are now able to live for God. Now, by human standards, Jesus died a disgraceful death. A disgraceful, brutal death. But the Bible is saying, but the death of Christ to God 
And to all who trust in Christ is a precious propitiation and redemption for us. And what is wonderful about the death of Jesus is that it can declare any sinner innocent. The young and the old, men and women, black and white, the drug addict and the teetotal, the sexually pure and the prostitute, the cannibal and the vegetarian, the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated. All of them can be declared righteous by the blood of Christ. There's nothing like the death of Christ. No religion or idea offers anything like Jesus. A God who loves and seeks out rebellious sinners. A God who suffers in our place and gives us a new life with him. There's nothing like the gospel. You often hear that all religions are the same, but I, I defy you to look into every religion and see if you find anything like this. God suffering on the cross for your sin to give you new life. It takes a truly stony heart not to be moved by the amazing love of God in Jesus. Because it is more than love. The word the Bible uses to describe it, you may have heard of it, is grace. Isn't it? We use it often in church. Grace. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. What does grace mean? Grace means God has reached out to you, not because of anything you have done, but out of the infinite abundancy of his amazing love for you. While you are still dead in your sins, God looked upon you with mercy and he reached out to you to save you. You see, the world says God helps those who help themselves. But the Bible says, no, it's the exact opposite. God helps the helpless, the guilty, the worthless sinners like us. That is grace. It turns our world upside down. That's the good news of Jesus, isn't it? That God declares us innocent in Jesus Christ. And so this brings us finally to the big question this morning, which is this. How do we receive this Jesus? It's a gift, but how do I receive this Jesus? Well, the final point there is that we receive Jesus by faith, by faith. Twice here we are told we are made right with God by faith in Jesus. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Look at verse 24 again. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received out by faith. And notice the Bible doesn't say faith only. It says faith in Jesus. Now everyone here lives by faith. You already, you're a faith person. You know, sometimes, sometimes people say, are you a faith person? Everyone is a faith person. Why do I say that? Well, think about how much faith you have exercised this morning just to get to this chapel. You got into a car, believing it is safe to drive. If you came here by public transport, you got into a train believing you can trust TFL. And for those of you who are driving, while you are driving, you trusted the traffic lights to work well. 
You also trusted, and remarkably, you trusted other drivers to obey the rules of driving. I think driving is crazy, don't you, bro? I mean, it's crazy. We actually trust people we don't even know. Do you see how much faith we have? All of us live by faith. If you're in school, you trust your teacher to get you there. That's why you love that school and you're trusting it to get you places. All of us live by faith. And most importantly, all of us have something or someone we put our faith in to get us through life more than anything else. Do you realize that? There is always that thing we trust more than anything. And if, we, if you didn't have that thing, you'd feel powerless, worthless in life. You'd lose confidence in life. You'd often feel very low or you just get tired of life. Now for some people, that thing is their family. Or perhaps a relationship they are in. Or maybe a career. For some people it's money. You know, maybe God has blessed them with money and they're trusting that. For other people it's a hobby. It's like their mood goes up and down with the, with, with, with the hobby they're in. I remember when I used to play chess when I was young. <laughs> it would ruin my whole day just depending on how, what I was doing. Some people's life revolved around hobbies. Whatever that thing that is big and dominates your life, that something is your God. It is your God you trust in. You live by faith in that. So you see, the question for us is, is not whether you have faith in God even. The question is, who is your God? Who is your God? Who do you have faith in? in? And can that thing save you? Where the Bible is saying that our faith, nothing else can save us, our faith must be only in Jesus Christ alone. Our faith must be in God who created us, who has come to us in the person of Jesus. We must have faith in Jesus that saves us from sin. Isn't that what he says there, isn't it? In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that raises the question, what does it mean for me as a person to have faith in Jesus? Well, to have faith in Jesus is to have a settled trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you on the cross. To trust someone, you must know them very well, isn't it? Right? This is why all parents tell their children, do not talk to strangers. Do not talk to strangers. When you're on the bus, when you're on the train... Don't let people you don't know chat to you. That's what parents say. They may sound nice, but you don't know them enough to trust in them. We live in a dangerous world. You must only have faith in people you know and trust very well. In the same way, faith in Jesus is about trusting in Jesus who we know. It is trusting in Jesus based on our knowledge of him. Faith in Jesus requires that we know Jesus and that he knows us. But remember, faith in Jesus is not just knowing about Jesus. Faith in Jesus is putting our full weight on who Jesus is. It is us giving Jesus our very heart. It is placing our hearts in the loving arms of Jesus. Look, faith in Jesus is more than just saying, I know and I believe. Well, I should just say, faith in general is not just saying, I know and I believe that the car is safe. Right? That's no faith. It is getting in the car and driving. Right? 
It is getting the car and driving. It involves doing, acting on it. In the same way, true faith in Jesus is surrendering yourself to Jesus. It is saying to Jesus, I am giving you my full heart as my Lord and Savior. And this is what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Many people profess to be Christians and are not true followers of Jesus at all. Because they don't have faith in Jesus. A true follower of Jesus accepts their guilty sinner. They repent of their sin before God. And they surrender their life to Jesus. They let Jesus now run their life. And this is what our sister Solange has done. She knows her good deeds cannot get her to heaven. So she has waved a white flag of surrender to Jesus. She is putting her full weight, as it were, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because she has surrendered her life to Jesus, she wants to show the world that she is trusting in Jesus by following the Lord Jesus in baptism. So she is doing what the Lord Jesus commanded all true followers to do. To repent and be baptized, not because baptism serves, but because it is a symbol of what has already taken place in their heart. She's being baptized because she has received a new life from the Lord Jesus Christ. And our baptism this morning raises a question for us, doesn't it? What about you? What about me? When are you going to surrender your life to Jesus? When will you repent of your sin, truly repent of your sin before God? When will you allow God to declare you righteous before Him? Charles Spurgeon says, The mercy of God in Jesus is so great. It forgives great sins to great sinners after great lengths of time. And then gives great grace and great privileges and great blessings. And it will give us great enjoyments in the great heaven of our great God. Oh dear friend. Come to this great God in our great Jesus today. Repent of your sin. Surrender to him. Let our great God declare you not guilty today. You know, there is a story of a father and son. And this father and son are walking across some farm fields. And they are doing this during a very dry season in the U.S. And as they look in the distance, they see a massive wall of fire steadily moving towards them. It's being carried by the wind, right? This massive fire. And so the father and son try to run. But as they're trying to run, they quickly realize that the fire is faster than them. So they stop running. And the boy now buries his face in his dad's side. He's very afraid. But just before the fire reaches them, the father reaches into his pocket, he pulls out a packet of matches, and he lights the fire behind them, right? As the massive wall of fire now begins to get close to them, the dad then scoops his son, and he gently steps back into the burnt ashes of the fire that he has just lit. When the wall of fire reaches where they are, it has nothing to fuel itself in because they are already standing in the burnt out remains of the other fire. 
So the father and son are now saved. Saved by the fire they just lit. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is obvious, isn't it? If you want to be saved from the fire, you must go to the place where the fire has already burnt. I learned that as a village boy, actually. <laughs> you you, you got you to be in the way the fire's already passed through. That's where you're most saved, if the fire comes. And you know, in life, there is only one place where the fire of God's judgment has already passed through. And that's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, the fire of God's judgment burnt on the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus took on himself the full divine punishment that belonged to you. That belonged to me. Jesus did it so that if you repent and trust in him, you can be saved from his judgment. You can live with him. On the cross, Jesus became your propitiation and your redemption. And so, beloved, dear friend, uh, come to Jesus now. Accept our Lord Jesus, accept what Jesus has done for you. Trust in what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Let the Lord Jesus bear your wrath and surrender yourself to him as our dear sister Solange has done. Now, what about you, dear sister? What, what about you, dear sister Solange? You are already trusting in Christ. What does this passage mean for you now? And all of us who trust in Jesus, we're doing Bible study, we'll ask you and you give us the answer. I think what it means for you is that you are not guilty anymore. God has declared you innocent forever. And he will never change his mind about you. He has given you a clean bill of health for all eternity. This is now your identity in Christ. Now, yes, God hates the sins you will, you will commit and you still commit. And yes, your daily sins uh, will damage your daily company with God. So you must repent of your sins every day. Because Christ has already forgiven you for those sins. And that's the point, isn't it? God has forgiven you all your sins. Past, present, and future. Because you are in Christ now. God is not angry with you anymore. And he never will be. And sometimes you will stumble in sin. You will mess up. You will fall. You will even start having doubts about whether the Lord Jesus loves you. You will feel discouraged. You will feel sometimes robbed of your joy in Christ. Those moments will come. They, they come to all of us who are truly trusting in Jesus. Because this world is fallen. And when they do come, remember Christ, your propitiation and your redeemer. Look on Christ there. Crucified on the cross for you. There is no sin our Father won't forgive when you truly repent of your sin. Because he has already charged your sins against our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And so let this truth motivate you to serve Christ. Dear sister, do not be satisfied with simply obeying Christ in baptism. Our dear Savior deserves much more than that. Infinitely more. 
God the Son placed his head on the guillotine of the cross to declare you, and everyone here who truly trusts in Jesus, to declare you not guilty before God forever. What can be more liberating and motivating and comforting than that? That God has declared us not just not guilty, but he has made us his very own by grace. And so this is my encouragement to you. This is now your identity. Treasure it. And may God help all of us who are truly trusting in Jesus to treasure this truth that we are not guilty before him anymore.